0: Hello, 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 and welcome to the 15th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, it's been spread on the news lately that the iconic toy store, Toys R Us, has recently declared bankruptcy on the 19th of September, 2017. This, of course, is bad news for longtime fans of the retail chain, where many, such as myself, have fond memories as a child browsing through aisle after aisle of a seemingly endless selection of toys, trinkets, and action figures. This has led to fans going to social media to lament its presumed demise and to cherish the innocent wonder of the retail experience, itself a hallmark of the fruits of the capitalist system. However, doing this would be somewhat premature, And if you were to dive deeper into the story, you would find a lot more nuance other than the surface doom and gloom. And especially surrounding the short-term survivability of the business, it is by no means a guarantee that Toys R Us is already dead. Today, therefore, we're going to be doing just that. By peering underneath the veneer of the toy store, we can hopefully gain a deeper economic appreciation of the toy business from how it was started, the strategies for its success, as well as the macro and micro factors that led to its eventual bankruptcy. Afterwards, we will briefly touch on the mechanics of bankruptcy as it applies in this case going through the various players who have a stake in a company, as well as learning why declaration doesn't necessarily mean the death of the business. Lastly, we will be looking at why the Singapore operation of Toys R Us is unique, which will hopefully bring some comfort to our aching hearts. Without further ado, let's begin. So, the story of Toys R Us begins with founder Charles Lazarus in Washington, D.C. After serving a stint in the Army during World War II, Lazarus seized on the opportunity of the post war baby boom by selling baby apparel through his father's bike shop in 1948. Soon, Customers would begin asking if the shop sold toys as well, with Lazarus happily obliging and eventually renaming the bike shop to Children's Supermarket due to its newfound success. In 1952, Lazarus would open his own full-fledged kid store under the name Baby Furniture and Toy Supermarket, before deciding to focus on toys with the opening of a discount toy store in 1957, the first to appear under the Toys RS name. By 1966, Lazarus would expand to four Toys R Us outlets, reaching revenues of 12 million US dollars, before receiving interest for a possible buyout. Within the next year, Lazarus succumbed to pressure, selling his ownership stake in his portfolio of toy stores to interstate stores for 7.5 million US dollars, though he continued to run these businesses. now The partnership between Toys R Us and Interstate was mixed at best. While Toys R Us was able to grow its number of stores by leveraging on the property or retail expertise that that Interstate had, the case for Interstate was very much the opposite. This is as Interstate had no room for growth left in its small department store business by 1957, and in the 60s tried to find success in the discount store market with several acquisitions, including Toys R Us. Eventually, after making some ill-fated expansion moves at the onset of the 1973-1974 to 1974 recession, Interstate would leave itself with too big of a burden, notably declaring bankruptcy in 1974 with what was, at the time, the largest accumulation of debt in the retail industry. However, in spite of the parent company's troubles, Lazarus would continue to see growth and success with Toys R Us, even continuing to operate and open new stores while Interstate went through a painful restructuring process. By 1978, Interstate would emerge from their restructuring looking like a completely different company. What was left was a portfolio of a 63-store toy chain and 10 departmental stores, a scant representation of the vast array of department and discount outlets that the Interstate brand was once known for. To reflect this massive change in its you know, major business driver, Interstate would change its names to Toys R Us Inc., with Lazarus serving as president and CEO. Toys R Us was thus officially born again. Now, at this point, it will be helpful to recognize some of the key strategies that Lazarus implemented at Toys R Us. At its core, the business was molded around the concept of a discount toy store. This is reflected in several key cost strategies, such as how the firm kept tight inventory controls to efficiently manage their assets, purchased in bulk to obtain better discounts, or open stores in low-rent strip malls where they could reach spillover shoppers from other stores. This cost advantage allowed Toys R Us to sell their toys at little to no profit, a strategy which is very enticing for shoppers and one that helped the business gain a price advantage against competitors in the retail toy space. Interestingly, the principle behind Lazarus's strategy never changed. Where he once started out in the late 40s by anticipating demand from consumers, this ability would be even more crucial in weeding out the trends so that he could pick out the toys that children sought the most. Now, it might be easy to understate the importance of this last point of business foresight, a trait that is now particularly crucial in the context of a discount toy business. As the business tends to run on volume and tiny profit margins, any mistake in inventory purchasing could be disastrous for the firm's financial performance. To flesh out an example in a different field, we can picture for a moment the situation of the purchasing manager of a clothing retailer. In anticipation of the busy shopping season, the manager spends significant resources into market research and concludes that certain trends in fashions should be a hit with customers. However, if the manager was off the mark regarding the shopper's fashion demands, the retailer will have difficulty selling those off-trend clothes, likely leading to a loss for the retailer. Consequently, her effort and investment would be completely wasted, since it is now tied up in clothes that no one wants to buy, or in other words has little market value, instead of cash profit that could have been employed to more efficient ends, such as acquiring better tools for market research, or by hiring staff to grow the business. Now this point about the precarious nature of the discount store business also serves to foreshadow the future problems of the toy company, which we will explore later. But for the period of the the 1980s and 90s, it seemed that the company could do no wrong. This was as Toys R Us continued to grow and enhance their niche of being a discount toy store, eventually being recognized as a classic case of a quote, category killer, aka a large store that specializes in a particular type of discounted merchandise that dominates the retail market in that category. It was also during this period that Toys R Us achieved many milestones, such as opening several hundred stores, introducing several new brands, expanding overseas, gaining a significant market share in the retail toy market, and even topping 1 billion US dollars in sales for the first time in 1983. What was notable in contributing to Toys R Us success during this period? was the company's implementation of modern inventory management systems with the aim of increasing efficiency and driving down operational costs. Now, This was evident in how the company's new universal product code scanning system aided tremendously with tracking the tens of thousands of different toys and products in each store, or how in 1989 they installed gravity feed flow racks in most of their US toy stores for restocking fast-moving items. Elsewhere, the firm's highly computerized merchandising system also served the double role of relaying critical data regarding consumer choices, with Lazarus noting that Toys R Us had the, quote, ultimate marketing research tool, end quote. In early 1986, as a recognition to the well-run operation at Toys R Us, the magazine Dun's Business Month hailed the company as one of the best-managed businesses in America, and credited Lazarus with developing an extraordinary management team, most of whom were promoted internally. However, by the late 90s, Toys R Us began facing stiff competition in the toy space, particularly from the likes of discount retailers Walmart and Target, as well as the online giant Amazon. Suddenly, the firm's cost-effective strategies were being replicated in different models, and their value proposition of a one-stop shop for toys began to wear thin. This is as Walmart or Target could easily offer the same prices for toys on top of a whole range of different products, thereby eliminating the cost advantage of Toys R Us while so-so beating them on convenience. The rise of these mass merchants would signal trouble for the firm, the emergent signs of which could be seen when Toys R Us lost out on toy sales to Walmart for the first time in 1998. In response, the board of directors brought in John Eiler, formerly head of a separate toy giant, FAO Schwartz, to try and regain market share. While Toys R Us under Eiler did try to respond by branching into different strategies, such as online shopping or or shared retail spaces, it also went through an extremely costly yet unsuccessful restructuring process. Arguably the most evident of this was the opening of the firm's international flagship store in New York City's Times Square, a certainly ambitious project aimed at revitalizing the Toys R Us brand image. The outlet encompassed an enormous 110,000 square feet and three floors, and was furnished with such extravagances as a 60-foot ferris wheel, a 20-foot-tall animatronic T-Rex, and a two-story, 4,400-square-foot dollhouse replete with Barbie merchandise. Now, perhaps the idea was to, you know, Maybe provide an unforgettable shopping experience for consumers. Unfortunately, as many retailers have felt with the rise of Amazon, it doesn't really matter how good the shopping experience is when consumers don't even have to leave the house. Expectedly, in the punishing competitive retail landscape, such costly retail strategies don't bode well in the long term, and the flagship store was closed down in 2015 when it couldn't keep up with rising rent costs. Now, Recall at this point the precarious position of the discount toy business that I emphasized earlier. In most cases, companies who go through unsuccessful restructurings eventually fold. However, in the case of Toys R Us, the firm will be saved by a consortium of investors made up of Bain Capital Partners, Colbert Kravis Roberts, or better known as KKR, and Vornado Realty Trust. The trio of which, in 2005, invested a collective 1.3 billion US dollars to complete a 6.6 billion US dollars leverage buyout. In some sense, you could picture the buyout as angels reviving a dying company. But in reality, the move is probably closer to vultures feeding off the remaining scraps of a carcass. This is as a leverage buyout is a transaction that is part equity and part debt. The debt that is induced as part of a deal will be secured by the cash flow of the business. In this scenario, as the investors buy over Toys R Us, they are essentially purchasing $1.3 billion worth of their shares while saddling it with $5.3 billion worth of debt, which has to be paid off using the company's future earnings. The incentive for the investors, of course, is that inducing leverage increases the returns to shareholders. The mechanism by which it does this is a fairly technical topic, which I will not go through at this time. By now, you can probably picture how the story will unfold from here. Toys R Us, a company that is struggling with competition but still maintains hundreds of stores and generates billions in revenue each year, is taken over in a leverage buyout which increases their financial burden going forward. The deal reads as thus, In exchange for the billions that Toys R Us will receive up front as it tries to revive its dying business model, the company will have to fork over about $400 million annually just in interest expenses alone for their debt obligations. If it sounds desperate, it really is, but at least the company gets to keep going. Suffice it to say that under such dire circumstances, it was somewhat surprising that Toys R Us managed to continue for more than a decade before filing for bankruptcy protection on September 19th, 2017. What's even more bizarre was the circumstances that led to the filing. This is as, a few weeks before September 19th, Toys R Us had been seeking to renegotiate the terms of about $400 million of debt that was due in 2018. However... While the creditors were holding out for better terms, rumors started spreading that Toys R Us was preparing to file for bankruptcy protection soon. This rumor scared existing key suppliers and creditors, who were worried that Toys R Us would not have the capacity to repay their debt obligations. As a result, nearly 40% of the vendors were refusing to ship toys out unless Toys R Us could pay cash up front, or in some cases, until they, they cleared all existing trade debts. Eventually, as the company suffocated from their financial burdens and seeing no more funding options, Toys R Us decided to file for bankruptcy. Now, for those of you concerned, this is where the nuance kicks in. For there are numerous types of bankruptcy that a company could file for in the United States, and perhaps the type that is most commonly associated with the term bankruptcy is Chapter 7, otherwise known as liquidation in which a company seizes its operations and a third party takes over, selling the failed company's assets to satisfy existing debt obligations. However, what is more common, as is the case with Toys R Us, is that of Chapter 11 bankruptcy, otherwise known as reorganization. In this scenario, the firm files for protection against the claims of its creditors while it formulates a plan to reorganize itself so that it can pay back existing debt in the future. The crucial feature of reorganization is that the firm is able to maintain its usual operations as it tries to figure out a better way to to manage their fiscal burdens going forward. Essentially, therefore, what reorganization does is buy some breathing room for the company to try and turn things around. This usually occurs by creditors agreeing to extend the terms of their loan, or by being able to secure some emergency funding so that it can maintain its current operations. The emergency funding was especially poignant in Toys R Us' case, as the firm managed to obtain a crucial $3.1 billion operating loan that will definitely help smooth things over with the nervous suppliers, at least in the short run. Moreover, it is also important to realize the other key stakeholders in the survival of the business. Aside from the obvious considerations of the employees or the creditors of the firm, Another key stakeholder is the suppliers and toy makers themselves. In fact, big name toy makers such as Mattel and Hasbro, makers of Barbie dolls and Transformers action figures respectively, rely so much on Toys R Us for a platform to sell their goods that they are willing to to give exclusive products or front promotions to help get patrons in the store. Of course, you might be wondering why Mattel or Hasbro don't just choose to sell their toys over at Amazon or Walmart exclusively. And the truth has probably got something to do with the fact that doing so would be considerably more expensive given that they have to compete for shelf space amongst a whole variety of goods and not just toys. The reason why Toys R Us then is so attractive to Mattel and Hasbro is that as a specialty toy retailer, Toys R Us will be able to offer exclusive floor space to certain toy makers whole year round. Consequently, we can see the effects of this in how Toys R Us contributed to 11% and 9% of Mattel's and Hasbro's 2016 annual sales respectively. Therefore, given that both these toy makers stand to lose out significantly in the event that Toys R Us goes under, we should expect them to chip in with the reorganization process either through more favorable trade credit terms or by helping revamp the, the retail stores. Lastly. We turn to the case of Toys R Us in Singapore and why they are uniquely isolated from the bankruptcy filings. This is as the entity that owns and operates the string of Toys R Us chains is not actually the same one that is filing for bankruptcy in the United States. In fact, Toys R Us Singapore is owned by an entity known as Toys R Us Asia, which is a joint venture with Fung Retailing, a part of Hong Kong's privately held Fung Group. As a result, creditors of the US-based Toys R Us will not be allowed to claim the assets of Toys R Us Singapore, nor does the Singapore side have to contribute toward debt repayments or stringent credit terms placed on their American counterparts. Certainly, while some of you might find it odd that there will be no direct impact on these geographically separate entities, part of the reason is likely due to differing economic conditions. Just as much as different trends take off at different paces around the world, So it seems that Toys R Us Singapore doesn't bear the same degree of competitive pressures as does the US entity. One instance of this can be seen in how online retailers are still relatively new entrants in the marketplace and thus do not have the same presence and competitive pressure as Amazon does in the United States. Elsewhere, we can consider the ease in which we are able to travel throughout Singapore as another economic factor certainly one that makes it more convenient for shoppers to enjoy the retail experience. Therefore, it makes sense that different geographic entities under the same brand might face vastly different economic outcomes or choose to operate as as separate economic entities. For another example of this, we can look to the fast food outlet KFC and witness how its stores are perceived in the US as compared to China where in America the fried chicken outlet is seen as a fast food stalwart that is catering to the lower or middle class, KFC in China is seen as an upbeat social hangout for wealthier middle class patrons. Because capitalists take signals from consumers, these perceptions would manifest itself in the kind of dishes offered and the ambiance of the restaurant. It should be of no surprise then that Yum! Brands, the parent company of KFC and other fast food chains such as Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, Operate under wholly separate entities in America and China. So, with regards to the existence of Toys R Us Singapore, fans and loyal shoppers really need not worry. In fact, even if Toys R Us in America goes under, it is likely the case that the brand will still continue operating in Singapore, which is certainly a huge relief for longtime fans and for future parents looking to purchase gifts for their children. In closing, I would like to reiterate the point that the decision by Toys R Us to file for bankruptcy protection under Chapter 11 is by no means a fatal one for the business. Certainly, while a company has to be in pretty dire shape to have to file for bankruptcy protection in the first place, numerous companies have used Chapter 11 as a mechanism to buy time so that they can sort out their fiscal obligations. In the short term, therefore, long-time fans of Toys R Us have no need to worry As the firm will continue operating as per normal, with current CEO Dave Brandon even saying that no store closures are to be expected. The long-term viability of the business, however, is a different story. We have retold the misfortunes of Interstate and its struggles with debt, as well as the failed Toys R Us restructuring under former CEO John Eiler. Needless to say, that given this lifeline of Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, there will barely be any room left For any more costly errors. And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much for sticking till the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making one that covered quite a wide array of topics such as pricing strategies, leverage buyouts, bankruptcy types, and even stakeholder incentives. I'll be posting the links to some of my main sources in the show notes, and although I recognize that i barely covered some of these topics, I might revisit some of them with fully fleshed out episodes in the future. To this end, there is a certain beauty about real-life economics and how all these topics can be brought together in a single company case study, but also in how it leaves you wanting to know more. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you would be so kind, you can help out by sharing this episode to your friends or by subscribing to the Economical Rise podcast on iTunes or Stitcher for more content. As usual, if you're looking for more content or a way to send a message, you can do so through the various social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This has been your host Danny at the Economical Rise podcast. We're over here... We hope to serve you the grains of capitalism.